Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You are listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast, where we are passionate about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and we we know that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. On this episode, I'm joined with two other men, Tom Petersburg and Hollis Half. Tom is going to assist me as a co-host as together we interview Hollis. Men, while most of our listeners are in the U.S. and Canada, I just want to share with you that in the last 30 days, people have listened from the following countries. The U.K., Spain, France, Italy, Germany, Croatia, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Botswana, South Africa, Pakistan, India, Australia, and New Zealand. And that's one of the things that gets me excited about this podcast is just how it has a worldwide reach. I would be thrilled if people listening to this podcast would get involved with what the kind of work that both you men are doing. Tom gives leadership to Catapult Ministries. Catapult Ministries exists to advance discipleship. They desire to see people grow in an awareness that God has not only called us into a relationship with him, but he has uniquely shaped us, gifted us, and positioned us to serve him for his glory. If you want to learn more about Tom's ministry, go to catapultministries.org. We're here to talk to Hollis, and thank you, Hollis, for making the time to to be on this episode. He graduated from West, West Virginia University and actually played on the Mountaineers' 15th nationally ranked Peach Bowl championship team. Wow, that's pretty pretty amazing. Hollis, what was your position on the team? I was tight end. You were a tight end. Okay. You you went on from there and you've been in, in various ministries. You've served as a pastor. You've been a chaplain for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pirates. But currently you work for the Bonhoeffer Project, which is something we're, we want to learn a lot more about. Great to be with both of you guys this evening. Let's begin with you, Tom, because you were the one who connected me with Hollis why don't you share with our audience how the two of you know each other and why you thought he would be a good guest for this podcast? I came out of the campus ministry at Vanderbilt University in 1979. Athletes in Action asked if I would consider being a chaplain to the pro teams in Cleveland. And so they connected me with Hollis. Hollis was already one of the uh, staff guys, one of the chaplains in the NFL. He was one of five men who were pioneers as chaplains in the entire NFL and uh, had opened chaplaincy. So I flew into Pittsburgh uh, in uh, 1979 in uh, April or May, and Hollis and I drove to Cleveland, and we met with uh, some of the men with the Cleveland Indians and the visiting team that day. Hollis had also been in touch with the head coach of the Browns, Sam Bertigliano. And so Hollis took the role of kind of introducing me to the Cleveland teams and uh, kind of orienting me to ministry. So it was Hollis who kind of uh, set my feet on the ground and gave me some direction. Wow, that is so cool. And Hollis, you know, I want to learn about the Bonhoeffer Project, but I'm really interested also in learning about those early days when you were a chaplain. 
Um, now, I've got to be honest with you. I was born in Pittsburgh. Um, I would have gone to Montour High School if I would have uh, grew up there, which I'm sure you, you've heard of that high school. I ended up moving to Akron, Ohio when I was 10 years old. So, but I'm a diehard Steelers and Pirates fan. So let me just throw out this question right off the top. Did you, did Terry Bradshaw, was he ever involved in, in your ministry when you were a chaplain? Uh, yeah, he was, he was actually, uh, at the core of it at the very beginning. Um, we had some of our earliest Bible studies at, uh, Terry's apartment downtown and would gather there for Bible studies. He was, uh, uh, I got there in 1974, Greg, which was good timing because that was when Terry was benched. He was going through some, uh, challenges. Um, and so he connected with me because I was a Christian. I told him what I wanted to do. And so he started immediately introducing me as the chaplain, the new chaplain of the Steelers. Well, once Terry <laughs> introduces you as the chaplain of the Steelers, it kind of sticks. <clears throat> and you might remember that was, uh, uh, that was the first year they went to the Super Bowl. So the first four of six years that I was there, the Steelers won a Super Bowl. So they couldn't really accuse me of, you know, messing them up any. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he was very involved. Uh, on Mondays, we would go down and ca I'd catch passes from him because no one else wanted to go in and loosen them up. So we had a very, uh, very close relationship during those early years. That is so cool. That is so great to hear because that, that those were the years when I was a young, a young kid cheering for the the Steelers because those were those were great days for the Steelers like you mentioned all the Super Bowls they won and and such. Are there any other stories like as you think back and you you were also a chaplain for the Pirates? Did you do that at the same time? Yeah, I did. I, I actually did some some work with the Penguins too, although they were a much harder team to crack. <laughs> so, do you have any other interesting stories just from that? as you look back and you don't have to mention people's names, but just stories of, you know, how you saw God work or even, even maybe mistakes you made um, as a young chaplain. Yeah. I made, I made plenty of mistakes. In fact, uh, I, I often look back now and think that some of what I'm doing now in discipleship, you know, grew out of some of those early mistakes, but I also saw God's hand in it pretty powerfully. Uh, when I grew up, as a kid, grew up in Ohio, around Sandusky, a little town called Bellevue. Um, there, you could count the Christian athletes in pro football, pro baseball ranks on you know probably one hand. There was Raymond Berry and Bill Glass, and you know a few others. Uh, but uh, so when we became part of that pioneering movement um, in, in 1974. Um, there were just five of us and, and it was like, you know, it, it was, uh, almost like a missionary operation. Uh, but you know, when I look back now, when I watch the uh, hall of fame presentation each year, I'm always struck by how many guys get up and give testimony to their faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's normative now for teams to have significant contingents of Christians, and uh, all that changed when, you know, when we kind of, you know, kind of took God at, at, at his word, you know, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples. And so uh, even though I had a lot of anxiety as a young 20 year old kid, you know, trying to walk into a professional franchise, 
you know, that kind of gave uh, some steel to my backbone to say, no, God's, you know, God's for me here and he's going to go before me. And, uh, you know, you did see just all kinds of uh, uh, amazing things happen. Uh, we established a chapel program early on and that grew from, you know, three or four guys to 25 in, within a year. Um, we started having, uh, you know, small groups where their wives could come and take part. Um, we, we even had discipleship groups early on. We, we began doing outreach programs. We had high school assembly programs, did over 300 high school assemblies in the tri-state area. Uh, we did a football camp. And, and when I look back and think, you know, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? The one thing we did right was we got, we got these pro athletes as they started to come to Christ, you know, out involved in sharing their faith and taking advantage of the platform that they have as professional athletes. And when we, when I look back now, there's probably a dozen or more guys that I work with that are, you know, might as well be in ministry. If they're not officially in ministry, that's what they're doing. And I think the reason is because their early experiences were that they found so much satisfaction uh, in being able to be involved in the changing of other people's lives, uh, that, that they made easier transitions into post-football life. Um, uh, they, you know, they stuck with their faith over the long haul. So, so you know, that I think was one of the best things I did. Um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably get into, you know, maybe some of the things I would have done differently as we get into Bonhoeffer, uh, because that's, uh, uh, that's become a kind of a clarifying um, experience for me to look back and to see why is it that the church as a whole is having such a hard time um, with the core ministry of the church. You know, it's what Jesus said was the core mission of the church, and yet less than 1% of pastors think we're doing a good good job with it. So how do you explain that disconnect? And that bothered me, uh, you know, all through my years with Athletes in Action when Tom and I were working with the same organization. And then as I became a church planner for the next uh, 20 some years, and then just in the last few years, I've, you know, transitioned into the Bonhoeffer Project where, where I actually work with uh, pastors and Christian leaders. But uh, I've got that, you know, history behind me uh, to see, you know, what things we did wrong and what, what, what things really helped. That's great. Yeah, I think, um, and I, I'm excited to get to this because I think one of the things that you've identified is how we've separated salvation from discipleship. Yeah. And uh, we, we made the mistake where we emphasize personal salvation and then we have kind of, uh, you know, discipleship is is uh just been left out and um the uh tom do you have any any you know can you think of any stories when hollis was training you like um did you did you go to one of his uh services when he was a chaplain did you observe him no no he would have uh we probably would have been on the phone from a distance uh after my first year there uh the the outreaches that hollis talked about in some of the uh, high school campuses they, they would take athletes, three or four athletes into a school, and they would compete against some of the athletes in the school in a number of events in a, in a gymnasium. So mm -hmm. they'd have the whole school there. And then the players would share their testimony in between events. But it was the competition that really engaged the students and so on. 
So one of uh, Hollis's training was to come with me. And so we went down to a little town about an hour and a half from Cleveland called Worcester. And uh, Hollis had a, one of his players come there. And I had a couple guys from Cleveland come. And we spent three days in the Worcester area. Uh, I think we did about three schools a day. Uh, but at the end of the first day, we didn't do a school. We did a, a, a home for troubled boys. And uh, the next morning at breakfast, Hollis said, uh, the, the player that he brought along with him, uh, one of the active players from the Steelers, so how you sleep well last night. How are you doing this morning? And he said, well, not well. I didn't sleep at all. He said, my family has a farm in Georgia, and God has convicted me that we need to turn that into a boy's home. And, uh, and he's done that. He has both a boy's home for troubled kids in Pittsburgh and one in Georgia. Even to this day, I, I've talked with players that uh, when they come in as rookies at the Steelers, they make a visit to those places and uh, see what impact a player has in the community. So a lot of a lot of the things that I got from from Hollis and from other guys would have been during conferences and during events that we did together. It was it was a very active time. I think the thing that drove it was something that Hollis said the very day that we met and drove into Cleveland. He said, the players are the basis of your ministry, not the scope of it. Oh. So the whole point was to build disciple players, equip them to have a ministry. And they were the ones that had the impact in the world. And, and it's really, it, it's a, it's a similar picture in discipleship. It's, and I think that's what's always excited me about discipleship. It's, it's, I love the guys I'm discipling, but they're they're just the basis of it. Those guys are are going to multiply and have another guy and another guy, and it spreads. Yeah, the it, the the fellow that Tom was referring to uh, had to be Mel Blount. Yes, and uh, yeah, Mel Mel has those two boys uh, camps going today, and and I think that's a great example of how when you get people out doing ministry and just rubbing shoulders with kids and others that they can have an impact on. Um, it, it, it is very impactful. It's very formative. And uh, they just begin to gravitate to ministry because they find great joy in it. That's cool. You know, one of the things that impresses me about the, the Steelers in particular is just uh, they, they just seem like a real family atmosphere. And the way they can keep a coach for so long and they keep a quarterback for so long. Um, did, was it that way when you were, when you were there? Yeah, that's, that's when the change was happening. And that's what happens when you become a winning franchise, <laughs> you know, they, they both kind of feed each other, but I think the Roonies, uh, you know, long-term ownership and they're kind of, you know, very down to earth, um, you know, Pittsburgh kind of family. Uh, you know, it certainly fueled that the fact that they've had, you know, the, you know, only a handful of coaches in their whole history, uh, you know, fuels that. Uh, and the, Pits the the town of Pittsburgh is, is very much like that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think even among, you know, insiders in football players themselves, they would say, oh, I would love to play in Pittsburgh because they really take care of their people. It seems that way. It seems that way. Well, let's um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how did you end up with the Bonhoeffer Project? It seems like you've had a lot of ministry experiences, great ministry experiences. But what was it about the Bonhoeffer Project that drew you in? 
Well, I, I did. I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful experience with Athletes in Action, um, you know, working with the pro athletes. Um, I, I had, uh, you know, wonderful um, success in many ways with uh, uh, church planning, planning two different churches. And, and people would kind of say that. They would say, well, my, you've had such a wonderful ministry. But I would always look back and say, um, in fact, I remember our, at a staff meeting once, someone said, you don't seem... Uh, you, you don't seem happy. And I said, oh, I'm happy. I'm just not satisfied because I see too much of a disconnect between what we're doing and getting praised for and uh, what I see in the New Testament. And, you know, I, they, I said, they, they would always come back and say, but, you know, everybody says this is such a great church. Or, you know, and I'd say, well, we're, we're the tallest midget. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, relatively everyone is flunking this course and, and we were at least trying to do some things and, and having occasional success here and there, but we were in nothing more than the tallest midget. There were some huge gaps in our discipleship. And so, uh, you know, I think that what, what brought me to answer your question, Greg, what, what really, uh, intrigued me with the Bonhoeffer project was that it, at one point after I had, uh, founded uh, a second church uh, called New Community Church uh, and served there for 13 years or just, I, I think it was just into 13 years as senior pastor. Um, I, I had a very capable guy, you know, with me, who'd been with me for, you know, even at the past church. Uh, so I said, I, I want to make a switch here. I, I, I was 63 years old, I think at the time I said, I don't want to retire but I want to step back and get out of trying to run the business of the church. <laughs> you know, I want to get back to doing what I got in the ministry to do, which was to disciple men. And, uh, and, and it just became obvious that it was, it was too challenging to you're being pulled in all these different directions when you're senior pastor. Uh, so my, my associate took over, uh, has done a great job. We're getting ready for another succession now. And uh, uh, I was able to focus you know, just completely on discipleship and trying to crack this problem of why are we not doing a better job at discipleship? Not just us, but the church at large. So I, I, I took a sabbatical. I read all kinds of books. I, I uh, attended a bunch of conferences. I talked to pastors up and down the East Coast. And, you know, it became obvious that I was not the only one that was having this frustration. Uh, it was pervasive. Everybody I talked to was frustrated with it. And uh, so at one point, a number of years into it, in fact, I was 69, so it's like six years later, um, I, I began to think, well, you know, my former boss, Bill Hall, who was my first director with Athletes in Action, and Bill had played with our basketball team, and uh, then he spent a year as a director with the pro sports teams. And then he went to seminary. He became a, a pastor, author, wrote a couple books on discipleship. And because we'd had that early connection, I read a couple of his books and found them helpful. Uh, but I began to think, you know, I wonder if Bill's still alive. <laughs> and and uh, so I Googled him. And sure enough, it pops up the Bonhoeffer Project and another group called Discipleship.org. And uh, so the more I read, the more intrigued I got. Uh, I showed up at the National Discipleship Forum in Nashville uh, was it three years ago now, I guess. And uh, 
I, I walked up to him and said, I'm Hollis Happ. Do you remember me? And in fact, his his comment was, uh, I, how could I forget you? You and you, you and I had breakfast with Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> so, um, you know, we reconnected after like 40 years. And as I sat and I listened to the breakout sessions that that he led and some others in the organization, I I realized that my prayer of all those years was being answered. He was speaking directly to some of the frustrations that I'd had with disciple making. Uh, he was giving me compelling answers. He was backing it up with scripture. And uh, so I, I left that conference kind of convinced that God led me there and that God was going to use that in a pretty significant way. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those issues. Because I think there are real issues, especially in the American church, yeah. when it comes to um, the gospel that we teach. Um, so let's start unpacking those and, yeah. and how they relate to the. Well, maybe we should maybe we should backtrack a little bit and talk about why it's called the Bonhoeffer Project. That might be confusing to people because it, it's not it's not the typical name for a ministry, you know. Yeah. You, want to, you want to explain that to people? <laughs> yeah, uh, we're not we're not Lutherans and we're not neo Orthodox, but we we are big fans of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Bill Hall read uh, the cost of discipleship when he was a young Christian. It made such a, a an impact on him uh, that he wanted to honor Bonhoeffer by naming uh, the organization and many of his. Uh, Bonhoeffer's emphases, uh, you know, his book on his uh, cost of discipleship was really an attack on cheap grace, this kind of antinomianism, uh, you know, kind of against the law, um, this, this reductionism of uh, the gospel message. Uh, and, and, and we see the same thing uh, in our own, you know, American culture today. Uh, Bonhoeffer was also committed to training pastors and uh, Christian leaders. He started a, a seminary called uh, Finkenwald. It was an underground seminary because they had to stay clear of the Gestapo. Um, uh, but I think there was that, that combination between his message and his methodology, um, which was he, he saw a need for uh, a renewal in the way people were being trained for ministry, not just to get a lot of head knowledge, but to be formed and shaped uh, in what he called a new monasticism. And, and by that, he simply meant that there was a, you know, the, the discipleship was all about discipline. And uh, it was about, you know, uh, forming disciplines that would shape our souls. And he understood that. And he, he brought that to that seminary and it really did shape the lives of young men. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tom, do you, do you have anything to say about Bonhoeffer? Did you read that book? Yes, I read that. Classic, and I, classic book. And then more recently, his uh, biography. I really, <clears throat> excuse me, I really enjoyed that. I think there was just great insights into his commitment. Yeah. So, um, all right. So you explain why it's called the Bonhoeffer Project. <laughs> what are some of the issues that they're they're really addressing? And I know, I know, um, you do these cohorts for ten months. A group of men will meet together. Do they meet yeah. monthly or weekly? Monthly. Yeah. Monthly. Yeah. Let me, let me let me back up a little bit and I can kind of segue with, uh, you know, another point of connection with Bonhoeffer uh, that, that is even more germane to the present situation. 
one, one of the things that's attractive about Bonhoeffer behind, beyond just the, the message, the clarity of his message, his methodology was his character. He, he, he exercised a certain moral courage in the midst of, you know, overwhelming pressure against the, you know, the Third Reich. I mean, he was born in the lap of luxury. He could have lived a life of comfort and ease, but he chose to leave that and to go back to, to Germany to, you know, pretty much sign a death, death warrant. And uh, uh, there's a great need in our day for that kind of moral courage. So, so he, he also sort of props that up. But let me take your next question, which was, so what, what, what's the problem you're trying to address? And you, you actually referenced it early on. You, uh, you, you talked about uh, what we need is not more the ABCs of the gospel, but the A through Z of the gospel, which is a quote from Tim Keller that I love too, and I use all the time, uh, because it, it, it frames the problem. The problem is we have reduced the gospel to a couple of simple steps that we could call a plan of salvation. Uh, and, and the gospel is much bigger than that. Uh, the gospel, when you, know, when you just think of the word gospel, oh, well, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus is much richer than just a couple of propositional truths like God loves you, you're separated from God because of your sin, Jesus died to bridge the chasm between you and God, and you need to ask him into your life. Now, that's all true, but when you make part of the truth all the truth, it becomes an untruth. And there's much more to the gospel than that. And that's what Keller was getting at with that line about the A through Z of the gospel. I look back on my own experience. I had seen the graffiti on the walls. I had heard the talks where people would give the ABCs of the gospel. And, and quite frankly, all it did was leave me with a little bit of guilt, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until I began really hearing people teach the Bible and, uh, uh, you know, you know, begin to dig into the illust illustration of the great truths of, of Scripture and their application that oh, all of a sudden, you know, those aha moments began coming, you know, fast and furious. And that's when change really uh, took place in the trajectory of my discipleship took off. So. The, the problem simply stated is that we have created a, a, a separation between conversion and discipleship. We've given people the idea that if you simply say this prayer, uh, you know, sort of agree to this plan of salvation, that Jesus will come into your life and you'll be eternally secure. You go to heaven when you die, die your sins will be forgiven. And, and yet there's so much more that that misses that it, it makes sense. And, and, and one of our key lines is that the gospel you preach will determine uh, the disciples that you make. And if you look at the landscape, the spiritual landscape in America today, or for that matter, around the world, uh, you see it littered with all these kinds of what we would call false gospels, partial gospels. It's not that they're totally false. It's just that they don't say enough. So, you know, we can we can talk about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, ask a question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, and I agree. I agree with what you're sharing. I think this is a really important. Um, it We need to clarify these things. And so part of what the Bonhoeffer project does is 
brings leaders together to really clarify. You spent some good time explaining what is the gospel and that the gospel does involve discipleship. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, Tom, have you, have you have you seen this issue in your ministry? Oh, yeah, I really have. I, I can I can think of days just being in a locker room. I mean, it, uh, it got to be where I would rarely ask a player if he was a Christian. You'd rather get in a conversation with them and, and begin to talk about following Christ. And you found you found the guys that not only understood the gospel, but they were following through with it. Uh, and they were, be, they were they'd become learners and followers. Uh, you know, one of the words for disciple is a learner. And so you, you, you could see a very distinct difference between the players, the, the guys that embraced the whole thing and the guys that, well, yeah, I, I went forward at a church or and um, you're not always sure what what really happened in their lives. So you get people in cohorts, you you get groups of leaders together who want to be disciple makers, and then you go over, I know the gospel is one of the subjects you go over. What are some of the other subjects that you talk about? Yeah, let me give you the framework for the cohorts. First of all, cohort is five to 10 leaders. Uh, we meet monthly for 10 months. Uh, sometimes we'll have a retreat on the front end where we'll merge sessions one and two. There is an option to do that on the back end, too, so you could kind of, um, you know, bracket your experience with, with two uh, retreats. But you have flexibility to kind of do whatever your group needs. When you meet for an hour each month, you meet for three hours and you discuss. There are three books that you uh, go through, the discipleship gospel, uh, conversion and discipleship. You can't have one without the other. And those first two are by Bill Hall and the third one by uh, Brandon Cook, um, uh, How to Live and Love Like Jesus. And uh, the, the first two books are more what we would call upstream sources. And Brandon's book is more downstream. And what I mean by that, and it really kind of goes to your uh, answering your question. If, if you had a, a stream, uh, a mountain stream, if, if you can imagine a mountain stream and it's it's gotten polluted. It's, it's, it's got, you know, toxic water in it. What, what a lot of people would do is jump right into the middle of the stream, get a bucket and begin to try to throw the contaminated water out. The only thing you're going to do is wear yourself out and you're not going to change anything. <laughs> so, uh, the, because the problem's not midstream, the problem is upstream. It's, it's the gospel. Uh, in other words, it's what scripture teaches the gospel is. And if you get that wrong, you're going to have those problems midstream and downstream. Uh, so we spend the first couple of, uh, and, and, you know, that's the, the, it's exactly what happens in, in, in the gospel. Uh, you know, pastors are constantly thinking, well, if I could just get them into a small group or uh, get them to memorize scripture or do any of these, you know, you know many wonderful things that Christians do to grow. But it's almost like they resist it. And I remember someone once said to me, uh, it's not a discipleship problem, it's a salvation problem we have. In other words, we've, we've fostered a false gospel, and so now people think they've become a Christian simply because they've said a prayer. And so what you have to do is to go back upstream and really understand the gospel in its fullness. And so we spend the first uh, two months actually rebuilding the gospel from the, the book of Mark. Uh, we do some fun exercises where you go out and you ask your friends and, you know, people in your, in your churches, you know, what, what do you think the gospel is? And 
you know, you're, you just, you're flabbergasted by people that you've been, you know, teaching for years and they come up with, you know, some really bad answers. Um, so you begin to understand, okay, a problem well, uh, well defined is, is well, is half solved. A problem well defined is half solved. And so once you, once you understand the problem, now you can address that. And then once you get that clarity around that, you come down, you start, you know, defining a disciple. Uh, another word that Christians throw around, it's part of our vocabulary, but people mean all kinds of different things by what, what a disciple is or what discipleship is. The average understanding in the American church is that discipleship is getting existing believers together uh, into a Bible study and deepening their scriptural knowledge. Uh, now, we're all for that. Um, uh, anybody that knows me knows that I'm big on the Bible. Uh, but, you know, Jesus himself said in Matthew 419, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you think about that sentence, it has three components. It says a disciple is someone who is one following Jesus, two is being changed by Jesus, and three is on mission for Jesus. And I could go through this uh, at a at a speed that you're going to miss this. So I would say to your listeners, so listen closely. If 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 Jesus just gave us what it means to be his follower, then we can't say that we're following him if we're not if we're not fishing for men, if we're not on mission with Jesus. So another helpful, I think, uh, paradigm shift that the that the curriculum is able to uh, take on is to help. Uh, change the end game. The end game is not just to have eternal Bible studies with Christians. Uh, it is rather to equip them to be able to reproduce and multiply other Christ followers. Now, that's a whole lot harder. Uh, but once you get clarity around your, your mission, your vision, what you're trying to do, uh, it really does help the other things, which is you come down through now uh, sessions uh, eight, um, three through uh, 10, uh, well, I guess it'd be four through 10. Sorry about that. Uh, you, you're starting to work through the Holy Spirit and his role in transformation. And then you, you're getting into the spiritual disciplines and, and the church, the pastorate and so forth. So the, the curriculum is designed to go uh, start upstream uh, with dealing with the gospel and what, what a disciple really is. And then coming downstream and beginning helping people to get into the ways and means of Jesus. Okay, so how did Jesus do that? One of the most interesting exercises we do is to have, have our, our, our participants go through one of the Gospels. They pick a Gospel, they go through it chapter by chapter, and, and try to identify uh, insights or lessons on discipleship from each chapter. And... Um, you know, I, we, we did this in our church, and then, then we went back and actually did what we call an integrated series. Oh, and, and then the last part I would probably say about the cohort and understanding it is that as you go uh, and you take what you're learning and you put it into a discipleship plan for your unique ministry setting. So when you get out, it's not just, a, yeah, I went to another conference. There's the binder on the shelf. <laughs> you know, I've got a plan that I've spent 
10 months developing. And in my case, I kept doing it because we went into the year of COVID. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were able to implement that plan at our church uh, during COVID. And it was remarkable in how it helped us to keep a, a, a disconnected um, congregation connected uh, by focusing on that theme with kind of laser focus. Uh, we, we would do an integrated study on the Gospel of Mark where we went through Mark chapter by chapter and talked about, uh, we called it uh, 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 rediscovering discipleship. And uh, we went through the Gospel of Mark eight months uh, or eight sessions in the fall, eight sessions in the spring. So we stretched it out over a year so that you, you could not avoid it. Um, we, we taught through it in the uh, from the pulpit. And then in our small groups, uh, we would uh, have questions to help them process the same message um, and to talk to each other. And most of this was going on by Zoom. And uh, then at a personal level, so if you think of a triangle with, you know, here's your, you know, your preaching is at the, at the tip of the pyramid. And then at the two bases are small groups and personal devotions. For personal devotions, we went through uh, two of those books, that we go through in the in the uh, cohort, uh, and uh, in five to ten minute little devotionals uh, every every day. So if you were plugging in and engaging, uh, you know, you really got a good, uh, you know, you really got educated in discipleship over that time. Although what you realize is you never arrive at discipleship; you never graduate. It's it's lifelong, and uh, uh, but at least. You know, we got everybody's attention. We laid a great foundation. And so uh, it then as part of my plan, I someone gave me some very wise advice. They said, be sure you've got something to do after you finish your integrated series. So after we did the series, about two months later, I had Bill Hall come in. It's actually the first, uh, I think, speak engagement he took on. We were always wondering, will we actually be able to do it live and in person? And uh, we had... Uh, couple hundred uh, people there live, which is one of the first things that we can't did coming out of COVID. And uh, I think we had 400 that were watching on live stream. So it was just a huge uh, success. And, you know, a lot of other discipleship things today, our, our uh, men's ministry is going through, uh, you know, one of the concepts uh, called the four chairs of discipleship, disciple making. Um, you know, it's kind of spreading into all the little nooks and crannies of the church. Uh, we're training our leadership community in some of these concepts. So we're, we're trying to create a culture of discipleship. And, you know, they trained me well to not expect that this is going to happen in a, you know, in a few months or even a year or two. It's probably a good three to five year, um, you know, initiative to, to begin to even make some inroads. And, and we're seeing inroads, but we still have a long way to go. But we're very excited about it because we feel like I, I've never seen anything that resonates as deeply with people who are concerned about these issues. It, they immediately begin to pick up on it and go, that's what I've been missing. You know, one of the things I, I hear you saying, Hollis, that that is so crucial, this really is a, an extreme culture shift within the church. The evangelical church is is so into teaching, which is good stuff. Uh, so into um, education, if you will. We we're an educated church as opposed to a discipling church. 
Yeah. And and what what I see so so much happen when that that shift is made, the reason people get excited is because they're not just learning things, but as they apply it and move it to other people's lives, um, they don't become bored. They they be, they're challenged. They, they they begin to stretch their faith. They're they're praying differently. They're beginning to say, "What is going on in this guy's life that I need to walk with him through?" and um, I, I've even heard many pastors say in recent years that Bible studies are the greatest detriment to discipleship yeah. <laughs> because they become dead end and there's no purpose other than learning some more facts. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's not the great commission either. Uh, it, it, it doesn't say go make disciples teaching them. There's no period there. It says teach them to obey. Yes. So uh, Dallas Willard used to say that's the great omission of the great commission. We've been satisfied just to teach people endless Bible studies when Jesus is committed to teaching people to obey. And one of the ways we we do that practically in the Bonhoeffer Project is, uh, and, and this phrase has uh, gone viral now. It's it's uh, you know it's 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 it, it's all over. Uh, is that we're not into information based discipleship; we're into obedience based discipleship. So, for instance, in your small groups, uh, or, you know, let's say, you know, mom asked Johnny after Sunday school, hey, what did you learn today in Sunday school? Well, the very question, you know, betrays the, the bias that it's what did you learn, not what did you obey? What are you going to apply? So in our small groups, we always ask the question, what did you do this last week um, to uh, apply Jesus's teaching or the teaching of the New Testament. What are you going to do this next week to apply or obey what Scripture asks? And it's amazing how that simple question can just kind of flip the the small group, uh, and it, it shifts it into a different paradigm that's obedience focused now rather than knowledge focused. Mm. Although, although, a... although although you still find it learned a lot. Right. Right. I love I love this, and I got all kinds of questions swirling about in my head. Um, one of the things I want to just share and and get your thoughts on both you guys is uh, one of the issues I see is that we we teach that people come to know Jesus by grace through faith. It's a free gift, but then when it comes to growing in the Christian life, it's all through hard work and effort. It's all it's like works-based. We don't believe in works-based salvation, but we believe in works-based sanctification. And that's where I think that we're, we miss it, that the gospel not only brings us to Christ for our salvation, but the gospel's key for our spiritual growth. So you talked about the spiritual disciplines. And to me, the shift is um, if, you, if you get it wrong, if you go with works-based sanctification the spiritual disciplines are things that you have to do you have to do this you have to go to church you have to read your bible you have to pray the, the way i look at it though is but if you get it right if you understand that um you know it's not something you have to do it's something you get to do exactly you get to do it because you're following jesus and if you follow jesus you want to know him more so you want to go to church, you want to do Bible study, you know, you want to do those things. It just seems to me like so many people in our churches, even if the preaching is preaching um, the gospel, 
there people are just trying to work out their salvation through hard work and effort. I mean, Tom, do you before Tom, do you have any any thoughts on that? I, I think it's uh, Hollis, you might know, but I think it's Dallas Willard that had made the statement that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Yeah. And, and that really clarifies a lot. I both my wife and I have some Bible studies where uh, some of the people have really struggled with that, that any effort is legalism. Any effort takes me out, out of the realm of faith. And, and yet I think of guys like Jerry Bridges who writes about this and he says, Hey, if you're a farmer, you got to get out and plant and cultivate and weed before you're going to have a harvest. But God is the one that brings the sunshine, causes it to germinate. <laughs> he said, you, you, you can't get away from effort and growth, <laughs> but it's, but it's not earning. So it's, so it really is a mindset on how I view grace. Yeah, Dallas Willard also said that uh, the church is not only saved by grace, it's been paralyzed by grace. <laughs> and, and it's it's really, uh, it's kind of a reductionistic understanding of grace. Uh, again, what we do in one of the sessions in the Bonhoeffer Project is we go through the vocabulary of uh, salvation, uh, you know, all the key words. And you, you, kind, you kind of see it, um, you know, this, this uh, tendency to reduce a complex reality to something more simplistic. For instance, grace gets reduced uh, to the forensic aspect of it, which is you've been declared not guilty. And, and that's, I mean, I went back. I mean, I, I, when you said what, when you asked what mistakes did you make? After I attended this uh, first Bonhoeffer session, I went back and looked at a course that I taught called Starting Out in the Christian Life. And I use all my favorite illustrations on uh, justification and, you know, coming to Christ and so forth. And what shocked me was they all focused on the forensic aspect of the legal declaration. Now, grace in the New Testament is, is not just um, forgiveness, it's also empowerment. Uh, when, when Paul says, um, uh, for the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to pursue, you know, it's, it's uh, we, we've got, you know, lists of just all the action words uh, that, that, that show that, no, this is exactly what uh, was expected to flow out of a genuine conversion. And oftentimes what will happen is that, um, you know, kind of a, a prayer or a signing of a card or something gets substitute. And in a person's mind, they think they've made that decision. Uh, so anyway, you know, enough on the, on the grace thing, but you know, when you, when you teach grace from the new Testament, it's much bigger than the way it's popularly been presented. If you yes. miss the empowerment aspect, oh, you know, see, that's the that's part of the good news. You're going, oh my gosh, yes, and I can't live this kind of a life, but Christ can do it through me if I learn how to surrender my life to him and let him live his life through me. So when Paul says, I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So, um, great, yeah, great. All, all these terms uh, are much bigger than we often teach them. And that's, yeah. where, that's where we get into a lot of our problems. And I, you know, I love Second uh, Peter 3.18, I believe, where, where Peter says, grow in grace. Yes. And, yes. you know, he's saying that to believers, grow in grace. So we don't move beyond grace into, you know, uh, 
works. And I and I appreciate what you said too, Tom, that that it does take effort. But there's something about the default setting of, of our heart is so so much bent towards self-justification <laughs> that we can come to Christ by grace, but then we have to like, you know, we have to prove ourselves, you know, and um, and I, I think that that's that, that, that's a big challenge. And I think your Bonhoeffer project addresses that. OK, so in the in the last few minutes we have together, tell me some stories about like men who've gone through this and uh, how you've seen their lives change. And maybe maybe your own personal story of you've 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 been sharing some personal examples. But um, like how, what do you see the transformation and what gets you excited about like the future and seeing yeah. this? it seems like the ministry as I was reading about it online is growing because it's growing through multiplication, which is the way, you know, second yeah. Timothy two, two, uh, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to reliable men and then to others. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, what's exciting to me, Greg, is that, you know, I, I just came back from a national, uh, discipleship forum, 17 organizations from across navigators, represented there, you know, some of the old traditional uh, discipleship organizations, some of the new ones like Bonhoeffer and others, but you get the sense that you are on the cusp of something that God is doing. You know, that great line by Blackaby, don't just go looking for something to do, look for what God's already doing and get in the midst of it. You go to a conference like this, you come back thinking, God's, God's stirring something up here. And, uh, you know, and I've seen it in my own experience when I went to that uh, first, uh, Bonhoeffer breakout series and it it turned upside down the way I was sharing the gospel and I was a you know I I was looked at as a spiritual guru in our community you know a, a, a good bible teacher uh, and yet I had to say I've been complicit in this problem you know I have I've been teaching kind of a partial gospel what we call the forgiveness only gospel um, but I, to give you an example of how does this change? Well, I, first of all, I don't even ask people anymore. Are they, are they Christians? I say, are you a Christ follower? So it's interesting. You get a pause <laughs> when you, when you, when you say that, um, I, I started changing the way I, uh, presented the gospel. I would talk more about the kingdom of God. Um, and this gets into, you know, more of the details of the, uh, of the cohort, but, um, I, I began to realize that when Jesus first came on the scene, uh, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't talk about, you know, dying for people's sins. He talked about the, the, the gospel of God is at hand. And he went throughout all Judea, uh, you know, teaching uh, uh, the kingdom is at hand. Uh, repent, believe the gospel and follow me. So I started to, uh, saying to people, you know, don't pray prayers follow Jesus. Now that sounds a little <laughs> much. And I, you know, I, I always qualify it, but I, I remember the first time I heard Bill Hull say this and it, it just stuck with me because I, I'd grown up in a Christian culture in which we were always getting people to pray prayers. But, you know, as, as we would say, funny Steeler story, after we were coming back from one of those high school assemblies, um, Tenshi Oaken, the former broadcaster and an all, all pro for the Steelers, uh, we, we said, how many, how many made checks on their cards, meaning how many made, quote, decisions? And he said, he said we had uh, 571 de decisions. 
but there were three that were saved. <laughs> and everybody immediately just fell off their chairs in laughter because we all knew that that, you know, that that check mark did not indicate a true conversion. Um, but I, I wasn't able to kind of frame it, articulate it until I, you know, until I went through my Bonhoeffer experience. And so now, uh, and this is what Bill, Bill, uh, Bill Hall said, he said, if you look at Luke 9, he said, Jesus turns to the crowds. And he said, notice he did not turn to the disciples. He turned to the crowds. And, and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to lose his life must uh, give it away. So, you know, he, he stopped and he made this very poignant point. Jesus was not talking to his disciples here. He was talking to the crowds. But how often have you ever heard an evangelistic message like, take up your cross and follow me? And I thought, you know, that's really true. We always sort of say, well, they're not ready for that yet. We've got to kind of hold that off. And that's what, of course, has created this tension uh, between decisions and discipleship. So, um, you know, I, I, I think I find myself just saying to people, you know, hey, in fact, this is Bill, Bill Hall line too. You know, follow Jesus and he'll teach you everything you need to know. Everybody always wants to know. I need to know more before I go out and witness or whatever. And, you know, Bill would say to them, and I think Jesus would say to him, just follow me. I'll teach you what you need to know. And I think if you talk to Tom and I, in our, in our common background with Athletes in Action and Campus Crusade, that's what happened to us. Uh, they didn't wait until we were theologically educated. Um, they just nudged us out into ministry, into sharing our faith, and that's what got us, you know, moving forward. Uh, because we were following Jesus, even though we were scared half out of our minds. So here's my last question. And this is for both you guys. What advice would you give a pastor of a church? Because um, you guys you guys understand the, the stress that a pastor is going is under, who really wants to make disciples, but he he finds himself just doing church. What what's one thing or or what's a couple things he could do differently to begin to make disciples in in his church? Because I think it is it. I, I think we, we have to have tremendous compassion towards these pastors. I think a lot of them have never experienced disciple making. Yeah. If they've never been discipled, then they don't know how to make other disciples. Yeah. And um, But do you have any words of advice you would give to a pastor who is just, you know, um, just trying to trying to, you know, do church every week? Yeah, Tom, you want to take that one first? Yeah, one of the things that that I've found recently is is a conversation with a pastor to to ask him to to kind of share, dream out loud of what kind of an impact is it that you want to have in your church and your people's lives. I, I met with a businessman today who couldn't talk enough about his pastor, who had become his best friend, who mentored him, who this guy, without being asked to do it, is is asking, okay, now how do I find a guy to disciple? How do I lead my sons to Christ? And, and so he's he's been so impacted by the friendship of this pastor who has, uh, in the back of his mind, it's influencing a few people who will influence others. 
And, and I think a lot of pastors, in fact, I've heard a, a, a consultant to major churches say over breakfast about 10 years ago, he said to me, there's a movement on multi uh, or, or uh, mega church pastors that they're backing up from the pulpit saying, I've had a full church for a lot of years, but I've not let it, I've not left an impact. And they're backing up and looking for young men to mentor and disciple in ministry and an impact. And, and I, I, I think they realize I've been real busy, but I've not left a legacy of men and women who will have an impact when I'm gone. So I, I for me, that's one of the things that has a pastor begin to un, unhook from his, uh, the things he loves to do in ministry that are comfortable to him. And he begins to wrestle with what is it the what is the impact I want to leave? Greg, I, I think you're asking a very perceptive question. Uh, I've, I've thought about it a lot. Um, I, I think in in America, in our culture today, it's very it is very difficult. There is is an enormous pressure on pastors, and quite frankly, uh, by taking the road less traveled and not trying to stir things up, uh, they can do pretty well. Um, you know, they can live pretty comfortably. Um, and so what would I, what would I say to them? I, I think first I would identify with the tensions. I, I felt them myself. I would talk about my own uh, complicity in the problem over the years. And I would probably encourage them to read the uh, book by Metaxas that Tom referenced earlier on Bonhoeffer, because he showed the kind of moral courage uh, that pastors need today to take with their congregations and in their communities. Um, if, if we're going to be able to actually ignite this new reformation, this resurgence or renaissance of discipleship, it's going to take moral courage, more than just people going through cohorts, more than just people reading the books. They're going to have to, uh, uh, have a come to Jesus moment and, uh, you know, find the moral courage that he can give them. Mm. But once they do, I think they'll be glad they did. That's excellent. All right, guys. Well, if people want to learn more about your ministries, Tom, share uh, once again your website and maybe just share briefly what's on your website, what kind of resources people can find. And Our website is catapultministries.org. Uh, we basically use it as a as a um, a site where we can make available materials and perspectives or resources and perspectives. So there are two main areas there. We talk about influence, um, just like uh, we work with athletes to expand their influence because of their platform with Christ. Uh, we're doing the same thing now with businessmen, having them begin to look at what platform has God given them, what has He prepared them for, and and help them begin to think outside themselves and, and rather what God's called them to do. And then the other side is, uh, is working with disciplers. What kind of materials are available to help with discipleship or mentoring of guys that are going to become disciplers? Excellent. And Hollis, uh, um, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, really appreciate what you shared um, so what can people do as a next step if they want to learn about the Bonhoeffer project? And Yeah, well, thank, thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, uh, you can go to uh, the Bonhoeffer project .com and uh, you will see uh, 
you know, all kinds of resources, books, and so forth that are available. Uh, you'll see the cohorts there, the cohorts that are coming up uh, that we, you could possibly jump into. Uh, bear in mind that even if there's not a full group in your area, we, we have what are called hybrid groups where you have some people meeting in person and others meeting, uh, you know, on Zoom. Um, and uh, you can get the history of the Bonhoeffer Project and probably uh, anything else like that you need to know. Okay, great. Hey, bonus question for you, Hollis. Knowing what you know now, and I can tell how excited you are and how much you've like grown and kind of like focused in on like what was missing for so many years, how would it change your the devotions you would lead in a chaplaincy? Like, because I'm guessing, because I'm, I would love to see both of your guys's. I would love to see a typical devotion you you led with with these athletes, and I'm I'm guessing that the devotion you would write today would be a lot different than the one you gave to Terry Bradshaw those years ago. And what would would it be a more of a call to discipleship, or what would it be different? Maybe maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, you know uh, that's an interesting question. I, I talked a lot about discipleship even during those days. The, the problem was the lack of clarity around the gospel, I, I think, was, was becoming an obstacle. Um, but I give a talk now um, where I kind of go very quickly, highlight the Great Commission and some key teaching points. And then I go through my kind of biographical, you know, here's the early years in which I was just you know, I got to be the chaplain with the Steelers and do all these exciting things. And it was kind of a romance. And then the middle years when I became a church planner and I began to see the culture shift from, uh, you know, from wind, build, send to sit, soak, sour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and, and then the, you know, the senior years, uh, which, which started when I really stepped down from being senior pastor and, be, began to focus, uh, you know, on this discipleship problem and, and the things that I learned and how that has shaped me. And that's what I would uh, share. Uh, the Steelers, because of their success, get, um, uh, you know, alumni gatherings every now and then. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping at some point, I was just thinking about this, and I mean, you know, it might be many years apart. So um, uh, I, I'd love to go back and have a chapel and say, I want to take you through the early years, the middle years, and the senior years, because most of these guys now, and I still am in touch with a lot of them. So I'm, you know, we're, we're talking about this stuff all the time, but there's a bunch of them that I haven't had a chance to see. It's always interesting, isn't it? To, you know, when you stay in ministry um, and we've all been, I mean, I've been in ministry 30 plus years, you look back and you, you wish you had your, your, your wisdom now in those early days. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it's 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 great. Tom, you have any final thoughts you want to share? Anything you want to share? No, I, I, I think it's um, what Hollis has said. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's a, a thing we learn, learn for a lifetime. I, I've said to a couple of people recently, you know, the hard part about being older is you realize what you missed along the way. Yeah. But the exciting part, it's making more sense now. And so, <laughs> so there's a there's a there's a low point a high point to it and and uh, let's just keep going for it yeah thanks for listening to this episode of the gospel addict podcast feel free to contact us via email at gospel at gmail.com stay tuned for our next episode and remember 
On your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.